This morning we are looking at these last verses in 1 John. It's been a few years that we've been working our way through this book. And we have picked up on this verse, verse 13, several times. We hit on it last week and we are hitting on it again this week. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And I think it's important that we pick up here at this verse today for several reasons. First, we've seen that this is one of the main verses that John has for his letter, one of the theses of his letters. John wants to make certain that believers in the church, the ones whom he taught and told about the life of Jesus, that they can know, that they can really know, that they can know that they have eternal life. John wants there to be no doubt. He wants you to understand that you can know that you have eternal life. Second, we're picking up on this verse because it helps to frame the next seven verses as kind of a synopsis, uh, hitting the highlights of what John has already written in this letter. We'll look at these we know statements in a bit, but they're each an articulation of the theology that John has already covered in this letter. And all of this is intended to be understood as the necessary framework, the supporting architecture, if you will, of our assurance, assurance of eternal life. Third, we're picking up on this verse because it serves as kind of this pivot between the previous uh, 12 verses that we looked at last time and these uh, subsequent seven verses. Last week, we talked about how uh, John was teaching how we can know, the, uh, the function of knowing that we know. Right? Whereas this week we are looking at what it is that you know. What is the content of the knowledge? So we move from how to know to what to know. Now the question that we have been asking throughout this letter is why is John so keen to try to communicate that we can know and what it is that we know? Why is it that John thought it was urgent and necessary and good to write this letter to this church at this particular time with this particular purpose of shepherding them in their knowledge? Part of the answer, I think, in that lies in the last verse of our scripture today, in verse 21. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. At first glance, I think that this verse kind of sticks out like a little bit of a vestigial thought, like um, a senile old John kind of finished the letter and then was like, oh shoot, I meant to write about idols. Dang it. Let me just tag this on. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. But rather than this being kind of an ancillary thought, an extra idea that he wanted to add on at the end, I think this is a key component to understand the thrust of John's letter. And let's see if I can, uh, let me see if I can show you that. So what is an idol? I think that um, initially you might have images come to mind. The Israelites in the golden calf maybe, or uh, various images of Baal in the Old Testament, or maybe idols of Jupiter and Apollo. More fundamentally, idols are things to which we would give our worship that are not God. Hence, God giving the first two of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. At risk of thinking that these are isolated to ancient peoples, Tim Keller helpfully elucidates that idols, or counterfeit gods, as he calls them, are anything more important to you than God. 
anything that absorbs your heart and your imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you, only that which God only can give you. What are the idols in your life? What are those things that you seek to give you that only God can give? I think there's things that are common to humanity through much of time, comfort, security, love. We can make idols of each of these. For the church to whom John was writing, he seems to have in mind a warning about taking on the idols of the false teachers that, um, that had left the church, the secessionists, if we might call them such. And these idols were bound up in the promulgation of special knowledge, if you will, a special gnosis, a security of being in on the secrets of the universe, of being in cahoots with the very forces of life and death, of being the master of your own destiny. For the Israelites in exile in the desert, when Moses lingered on Sinai, the Israelites turned to making their own idol, their own golden calf, to meet their anxieties of being lost and abandoned in the desert. God has brought us to this place and then left us. Who do we worship? Who do we bow down to? Who do we depend on for food? Who do we swear our allegiance to? Let's make it a golden calf. In Pearl Buck's novel, The Good Earth, the protagonist is a, farther, a farmer who meticulously farms the land depending on the earth for each carefully tended bud of wheat or rice. The earth provides the soil of life. But it not only provides the soil of life, but it builds the house, the mud house that he lives in. It provides shelter, it not only brings the harvest, but in times of desperate need, in times of famine, he literally mixes the mud with water and drinks it, providing the sustenance and nutrients, the little bit that it has for his life. Shelter, sustenance, life. And what does he do? Naturally, he takes the earth and he makes the earth into two idols of earth and clothes them and builds a mud hut of earth around these idols to shelter them. And then he thanks these idols of his hand for the earth, for the life, for the shelter, for the sustenance, thanking these mud figures for that which only God can give. We looked at a little bit of the Nathan Hills novel Wellness last week and the protagonist Elizabeth uh, and her work in the clinic. And she interviews patients seeking out novel treatments for various ailments. And what Elizabeth discovered after she had been asking questions about her subjects, home lives and careers and worldviews was that people were in general totally confused and overwhelmed and tired and worn out. They lived in a landscape full of despair and distrust, a world with toxic sludge seeping into the groundwater, particulates hanging in the air, oceans full of microplastics, a sky swamped with carbon and radiation, a food supply awash with pesticides and filler and garbage, doctors who had no time for them, politicians lying to them, PR flax lying to them, TV journalists lying to them, unsatisfactory employed, hopelessly in debt, one medical bill from bankruptcy and nobody protecting them from any of it, government regulators in bed with corporations they regulated, the powerful protecting the powerful while all the little guys suffered. And listening to these stories, Elizabeth decided that believing in fad diets or mystical chakras or energy crystals was actually pretty rational and sane response to systemic collapse. If nobody else was going to protect you, 
you had to do the job yourself. You had to believe in something. You had to find somewhere hope. Woof. That resonates, doesn't it? And what's the hope in which they place their trust? Well, Elizabeth's mentor provides this analogy, you know, of those pictures of uh, the people standing in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, and there's one particular place that you can stand where it looks like you're standing and holding up that Leaning Tower of Pisa. And the mentor says, that illusion only works if you, when you're standing in exactly the right spot to observe it, and if you move one step left or right, the illusion falls apart. And I think people do this all the time in life. They find a view of the world that agrees with them, a spot that feels safe and secure, and they plant themselves on that spot and don't move. Because if they did move, their certainty and security and safety in the world would fall apart. And that's too scary and painful to contemplate. It's a little assertion of sovereignty amid the chaos. In the face of insurmountable threats and distressing precarity and pain, the body longs more than anything for certainty body longs more than anything for certainty. I feel that. When one thing begins to spiral out of control and then another and then another, when you wake up one morning and I, you can't just seem to get a firm standing, a firm footing, the grounding that felt firm yesterday is suddenly unsafe and uncertain. I see my anxiety claw its way into one tiny little aspect and then it begins this cancerous spread creating this miasma of anxiety and dread and hopelessness that pervades all of reality and it seems like nothing is certain. There is nothing that I can believe surely. I heard the pastor and author Steve Cuss the other day describe how anxiety, um, anything, anytime something is ambiguous, it makes you anxious. And in that ambiguity and uncertainty, anxiety begins to flourish and grow. And Steve says, anxiety wants to keep things vague. It wants you to stay on a treadmill to nowhere. Anxiety has a gospel. Worry your way to peace. Just keep worrying about it. And in the midst of that uncertainty, in the midst of that miasma of anxiety and doubt, where do you go? What do you do? What do you believe? What do you reach to? The Israelites made a golden calf, a definitive sparkling God by which they could define, them, define themselves, at whose feet they could throw themselves. The good earth farmer continued to trust that the constant, ever-present, ever-persistent earth would hear his cries and petitions. Elizabeth began to believe that certainty was just a story, any story, so long as the story was humane, generous, beautiful, loving. What had truth to do with certainty? It's just a story. When the world turns upside down, isn't the tendency to just grasp at anything, to make anything work? to make something, anything at all, give you that which only God can provide. And so what does John write to this church where all certainty has been stripped away? I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Here is certainty. Here is firm footing. Here is a strong foundation. Here is life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. The only one who can provide what you are looking for is God. Keep yourselves from throwing yourself at anything that isn't the truth incarnate, whole life embodied. Know that here in Christ is life, eternal life. And then in the rest of these verses, we go on to fill in the details of what this life, this eternal life really means, of what the implications of our life in Christ really mean for us. So we read in verse 14, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. This is the confidence. This is following on from John's assurance of eternal life for those who believe in the name of Jesus. He ties our assurance of salvation, our certainty of life, to our certainty in prayer. Again, in John writes in verse 15, and if we know that he hears us, we know that we have the requests. Part and parcel with eternal life is the certainty that God hears our prayers. Assurance of eternal life means assurance of fruitful prayers. But I, I think it's important to spend a little time parsing these words because I'm sure a few of you are already a little squeamish. I was sitting with Charlie a few days ago and I brought up these verses and you could kind of see his eyes like, oh, what are you going to do with that? <laughs> I don't want to preach on that. The logic of John's argument is that if we ask God for something, he will hear it. And if God hears that request, then he will do it. And I'm sure immediately many of you have called to mind all of those prayers that you have prayed unceasingly that seem unanswered. I'm not talking about the prayers for Lamborghinis and mansions talking about those heartfelt, genuine prayers for the salvation of brothers and sisters, friends and coworkers. I'm thinking of those prayers for healing, prayers for justice, prayers for peace, prayers for answers, prayers for fertility, prayers for reconciliation. What about those, John? Are we really supposed to believe that God hears and answers our prayers when there have been so many that seem entirely unanswered? So many that just seem to fall on deaf ears. Really, John, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of God. These are hard questions. These are real struggles. I know some of you, many of you maybe, are dealing with a plethora of prayers that just seem so fruitless. I don't want to take that lightly. I know that you might pray them for days and weeks and months and years and you just want to scream, where are you, God? Do you actually hear me? Do I even bother opening my mouth anymore? I don't have any simple answers. But I do treasure any opportunity to hold those prayers with you. I think that we could also use these verses to try to trivialize this problem. 
A few weeks ago when Isaac preached on chapter four, he noted that there are several verses that we use to like use as like these glib answers, these kind of these packaged answers, these present answers. We kind of take these little aphorisms, God is love, or we love because he first loved us. And then we ni- nicely wrap them up in a little bow and we present them like, here's your answer. Here's your complete and um, solid systematic theology that uh, sufficiently addresses any answers and any questions that you may have had about this particular difficult situation. God is love. Boom. Answered. Whoops. And when we use those verses like that, I think we risk trivializing those verses into meaninglessness. And I think the same thing is the risk here in 14 and 15. We risk trivializing them into meaninglessness. If we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. There is great truth here. There is substantial significance here. But it's not comprehensive. It's not meant to solve all of your wrestling with unanswered prayer. There is, however... I think a substantial, a significant nuance that we don't want to miss in these verses that maybe will shed a small glimmer of light on the question, on the problem. In verse 14, there's a caveat that I'm sure some of you have already seen and think that I'm glossing over, and I certainly am not glossing over. John provides this caveat in those prayers um, that would be well worth our consideration. This is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, at first blush, I think this might feel like that old schoolyard trick. You know, the the heads heads I go first, tails you go last, right? There's no way I can lose, right? And it kind of feels like John is pulling a fast one on us. Or maybe it's like he's a clever lawyer, like he put in this tricky loophole. So long as you ask according to his will, then he will hear you. And if you don't have an answer to your prayer, then you must not have heard you. And if he didn't hear you, then you must not be, a, you must not be a praying according to his will. Boom, lawyered, right? Is that how John's treating this? I think the better way to understand the force of John's words here is, as one commentator frames it, John may understand prayer not primarily as communicating in order to acquire petitions or somehow force God's hand, but as communing with God. Prayer is not primarily communicating so much as it is communing. This is why John has it following so closely on From verse 13, you have eternal life, therefore you have the ear of God. In Christ you are heard, you were made for eternal life, you were made for fellowship with him. God's ears are attentively attuned to your prayers because in your your praying, in your crying out for mercy, for justice, for healing, for salvation, as you cry out to God for these things that he has ordained, as you cry out to God to do the very things that he has said that he will do, he is working on you. He's forming you, he's shaping you, he's conforming you into the beautiful, glorious, sinless son of God. In your prayer, you are communing with God. Marianne Thompson frames it like this, prayer is not a battle, but a response. Its power consists in lifting our wills to God, not in trying to bring his will down to us. 
In the Psalms, David writes, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. My friend, in our prayers, we commune with God. We have the firm confidence that if you are in Christ, then you have the ear of the king of the universe. If you ask it according to his will, he will hear it. And if he hears it, then it will be so. John now moves into a bit of a case study in prayer, if you will. In our assurance of eternal life, we have the assurance of answered prayer. If we have answered prayer, for whom do we pray? Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. The first thing to note is that John ties our assurance of eternal life and assurance of answered prayer to care and concern for others. I think there's an assumption that there's a presumptuousness in our assurance, assurance of eternal life. And I think that's a fair critique because I think there are some who would treat it as a presumptuous knowledge. But clearly John doesn't see an assurance of eternal life as turning someone in on themselves. Far from it, for in eternal life, in being in Christ, we should be turned outwards. We should be enabled to love others more. Our assured prayers become not self-promoting aggrandizement, grandizement, pulling a Justin, but they become supplications for mercy and justice. Second, it would be helpful to spend a minute on the distinction that John is drawing between sin that leads to death and sin that does not lead to death. I think the um, draw of my mind, of perhaps your mind, in reading this passage is to begin thinking along the lines of the unforgivable sin or sins. But I think that that's not at all what John has intended by this passage and in this letter. This isn't really the thrust of his understanding with sin that leads to death. In this particular case, John doesn't use a a definite article. There is not the sin that leads to death, but there is sin that leads to death. And moreover, in verse 17, he clarifies that all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. The penalty of sin, all sin, any sin, is death. But there is sin that does not lead to death. I think that when we see it in light of the rest of this letter, John, when he discusses sin and those who are not in Christ, those who are sinning, he doesn't talk about an individual sin, one particular sin that is so bad that it puts you beyond the pale, but rather he talks about a persistent pattern of unrepentant sin. And he uses that in contrast for the life of the believer. He doesn't talk about sinlessness for the believer now, but a persistent pattern of repented sin, of diminished sinfulness. And so the one who commits the sin that leads to death is not one who is in Christ. They are one who has never had eternal life. But third, I think it's also important to note the ambiguity that John leaves with us in his admonition. There is sin that leads to death. 
I do not say that one should pray for that. John is not explicitly saying, don't pray for people in sin that leads to death. But he's also not saying, do pray for them, right? He's, he's leaving this kind of matter open to your wisdom, to your discernment. I mean, cl clearly, it partially just makes sense. Everyone at one point was in sin that led to death, and they were not in Christ, and therefore someone had to pray for them. And it is good to pray for people who are in sin that leads to death. And so there makes sense that we pray for those who are not in Christ. I think there makes sense that we are called to exercise wisdom in that prayer. But then why doesn't John just give a carte blanche commendation for prayer for all, prayer for anyone, prayer for everyone, whether or not they are in Christ? Why would we need to exercise any discernment at all? Isn't it better to always pray than not to pray? I think the reason that it's not necessarily always right for us to pray, pray it's because it's tied to our fundamental understanding of prayer as communing with God. At some point, our seeming intercession for life on the behalf of someone can turn from pleas for God's mercy and pleas for God's will to be done to becoming a requirement that our will be done. And I don't say that lightly. John doesn't lay out a specific metric by which to say when or not to pray. I certainly have no prescription of when do we discern that it is my will that I need done versus me praying that God's will be done. But all I can say is that if our prayer is part and parcel with communing with God, then our intercessions must always begin and end with thy will be done. God's will be done. And that then is the requirement for each of us to exercise wisdom and discernment in the persistence of that prayer. So in verses 14 and 15, we see that we know that we have our prayers heard and answered. Next, John kind of moves into this litany of we know. So verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. John is reiterating the point that he has made several times throughout this letter. Not that new life in Christ means that we will be made sinless now or that we can expect sinlessness before we see Christ face to face. For as John wrote in uh, chapter one, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But rather, the one born of God is given new life, enabled to break the habit and the force of unrepentant sin. So John locates this new life in the very specific protection of God from the evil one. He who was born of God protects him. That is, God protects the one who is born of God and the evil one does not touch him. In Matthew 23, Jesus laments over Jerusalem, this beautiful passage. He says, how often would I have gathered your children, Jerusalem, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. 
But whereas the Israelites resisted that covering, resisted the mothering of of God over them, the one who is in Christ finds solace, peace, rest in that covering. Notice that the enabling of not continuing to sin is not in the power of my will, my ability to follow those commands. But in this passage, John locates our ability to not continue in sin in God's protection for us. It is God working in us that protects us, that grows us in that sinlessness. It is in only his hands and by his sure covering that we are enabled to not continue sinning. We know that God hears and answers our prayers. We know that everyone born of God does not keep sinning. Now verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. John draws this distinction. The world lies in the power of the evil one, not not that the world is of the evil one, not, the world, not that the, e- the world came from the evil one, but rather that the world presently lies in the power of the evil one. That is, there is power delegated by the Father to the evil one, to Satan presently, that captures the fate of the world presently. But it does not seal that fate of God. And the contrast is drawn that for those in Christ, that we are from God. John throughout this letter has utilized this biological metaphor, whereas Paul uses the adoption language that we are brought into the family of God. John uses the biological metaphor. We are from God. We are in Christ. The seed of God has been given to us. We have been been remade. We have been born again so that in him we might be made new children of God. Our very ontology, our very being, our very DNA has been rewritten so that we are in God. Our biology has been changed. In our new life, our very parentage has been transformed. And therefore, John writes, we know that we are from God. We know that our prayers are heard. We know that everyone born of God does not keep on sinning. We know that we are from God. And finally, verse 20, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true in his son, Jesus Christ. John ends this letter as he began it. This is a story. (laughs) What's the song? This is a story about a girl. Anyway, (laughs) This is a story about Jesus. This is a story about Jesus who is the Christ, God who put on humanity that he might live beside us and die for us. We know that the Son of God has come. He was not merely a man, not merely an angel of God, but he is God in the flesh. And he dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We know that Christ has come to us. And now we get to the locus, the focal point of all of this knowledge. He has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. 
we could reach this far and believe that John is trying to just lay out a series of facts, a series of propositions that we can choose to believe or not believe. However, it is that, but it is far more than that. It is not merely propositional truth. John certainly is helping us understand that these are true things to know and to believe. But that each of these facts, each of these ideas, each of these propositions is bound up and wrapped up in the person of Christ himself. And it is knowing Christ to which John wants us to see. This is relational knowledge. Just as we can know a set of facts and statements about a person, his hair is blonde, she works at Sandia, whatever it might be, knowing a set of propositions, a set of facts about a person is not the same thing as knowing someone. But when you get to know a person, when you get to hear their story, when you understand what makes them tick, what makes them angry, what makes them excited, what brings them joy, where they came from, where they hope to go, this is part of knowing a person. And you get to know a person in that communing with someone, with getting to know them. And in the same way, Christ came to give us understanding that we may know him who is true. We were made, we were reborn in Christ. We were given newness of life, not merely to understand a set of facts about God, but we were made to know God, to know him personally, to know him intimately, to know what causes his heart to ache, to know what causes his heart to sing. This is relational knowledge. This is knowing him who is true. And how is it that we can know God? Because we are, as John says, we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. This is the culmination of John's letter. This is what eternal life is. Eternal life is Christ. Eternal life is being made new in him. Eternal life is having all the benefits of our new birth being applied to us because we are in him. Eternal life is not some distant reality, something that we will eventually achieve and begin to live out. Eternal life is a present reality that has begun now for those who are in Christ. John said in chapter 3, we are children of God now. This is because we are in him now. And in that we are united to Christ at this very moment. This is eternal life. John articulates this part of this result of the incredible doctrine of the union with Christ. Namely that through our union with Christ, we have eternal life. Being in Christ, those who are in Christ have eternal life. We are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is eternal life. Christ is eternal life. And it is through this union with Christ, being found in Christ, that all the eternal benefits of Christ are applied to our lives presently and persistently. Brothers and sisters, in Christ you have eternal life now. And we find through scriptures a whole host of beautiful gems of what it means to be in Christ, of being united to Christ, of our union in Christ. In Christ, you have redemption. 
In Christ, you have new life. In Christ, you have no condemnation. In Christ, you have freedom. In Christ, you have the love of God. In Christ, you are new creations. In Christ, you are sanctified. In Christ, you have every spiritual blessings. In Christ, you have glorious riches. In Christ, you have righteousness. In Christ, you have a heavenly reward. In Christ, you have eternal glory. In Christ, you have the riches of his grace. In Christ, you have reconciliation with God. In Christ, you are justified. In Christ, you have resurrection. In Christ, you have forgiveness. In Christ, you have salvation. In Christ, you have grace. In Christ, you have a heavenly calling. In Christ, you are regenerated. In Christ, you are justified. In Christ, you are adopted. In Christ, you are sanctified. In Christ, you will persevere. In Christ, you will be glorified. In Christ, you have eternal life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. He is the true God and he is eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. God, these words of John, these pastoral words of the elder John to this church so long ago, may these words fill our hearts, fill our minds. May they be truths to which we can cling not because they are unembodied realities, but that they meet their maker. They meet their whole self, that each of these truths is found in you. And it is in you we have life, eternal life. For those who doubt God, give them assurance. God, may this be a boon for my soul, for my heart. May this be a boon for our church, for this church, for our city, that we might go out in the love and the full assurance that we are united to Christ, that we are in Christ. And if we are in Christ, then we are secure in him. Transform us that we might be made more and more in your image. It's in your name we pray these things. Amen.